Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. B2B payments are still stuck in a 1980s form. Paper checks are still being delivered on a regular basis. Paper invoices are being delivered on a regular basis, and it costs organizations billions of dollars to transact that way. So Bill Trust exists to help digitize that financial supply chain. That was Flint Lane, the CEO and founder of Bill Trust, and he is our special guest this week. This is episode 119 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. Flint grew up on Long Island, New York, and from the beginning, thought he was going to be a software developer for life. After a few software jobs, he started a company called PayTrust, sold it, and started Bill Trust in his basement in September of 2001. Bill Trust exists to help medium and large companies digitize their financial supply chain, think B2B payments. They went public in January and expect to do $125 million in revenue this year. Bill Trust has always been in the cloud and is sold via subscription model. He's the Leaders in Payments' first star table tennis or ping pong player. He plays competitively several times a week. We've got a great episode today, so let's get started. Hi, Flint. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's dive right in. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Yeah. So I'm Flint Lane. I grew up on Long Island and was the classic computer nerd in high school, testing all of the computers out in the school, really pushing the boundaries of all the different classes they had in high school. And I think from the beginning, I knew I was going to be a software development type person. So Applied to a bunch of colleges and wound up going to a school in upstate New York called Rensselaer Polytechnic and majored in computer science and thought I was going to be a software developer for my entire career. (laughs) Okay, we'll get into more of your professional journey in a minute, but let's talk about Build Trust. If you don't mind, tell our audience what Build Trust does. Sure. So the world is going through the digital revolution, as most people know. Many things that used to be done in an analog fashion have moved to digital. There's a big exception to that, and that is B2B payments. B2B payments are still stuck in a 1980s form. Paper checks are still being delivered on a regular basis. Paper invoices are being delivered on a regular basis, and it costs organizations billions of dollars to transact that way. So Bill Trust exists to help digitize that financial supply chain, and we focus on medium and large accounts receivable departments. So these are big companies. Think Under Armour, Coca-Cola, CDW. They have hundreds of thousands of customers they deal with on a regular basis, and they need help in dealing with them more efficiently. The closest parallel to that is the payroll industry, which went through a revolution probably 50 years ago with the advent of the ACH network, where more and more employers wanted to pay their employees with electronic payments or automatic deposit, but they didn't know how to do that themselves. And ultimately, that born a payroll industry. We're doing the same thing in the accounts receivable category. Okay. And how big is the company? So we went public back in January, and we've disclosed that we'll do about $125 million in revenue this year. Okay. You mentioned sort of mid-sized to larger companies, but are there certain verticals where your solution fits better? Yeah, so it is a horizontal solution that sells vertically. And what I mean by that is accounts receivable generally is the same, whether you're selling shirts 
whether you're selling records management, whether you're selling legal services, accounts receivable includes many different steps. It is, you're selling basically on a promise to pay. So if you think about we as consumers, when we get credit cards, we have certain credit limits that the card company set for us. Maybe it's $5,000 or $10,000 because they believe it's in our means to pay that amount. B2B commerce works the same way. Most people in B2B don't actually pay cash for goods. They buy things on credit. So the first thing an organization needs to do when they're selling is establish a baseline credit, and that's called credit decisioning. Once they've established credit, maybe I'm selling office products to a company. I'm agreeing that they can buy up to $25,000 worth of stuff. Um, Once I've established credit, I try to sell them things, and that can be through an e-commerce site or maybe a direct sales effort. I then have to invoice them for goods. I then have to collect payment for goods. I have to apply cash once I've received their payment. And then hopefully everybody pays on time, but likely there will be some delinquency. I have to go through a collections process. So there are many steps to accounts receivable, all that need sort of reinventing. And that's what Bill Trust has been doing over the the last 20 years. Okay. And do you sell through like a a SaaS model or what's your business model? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So when we started, the SaaS term really didn't exist. The cloud term really didn't exist, but we've always been in the cloud. So we were originally a a fintech company kind of before that category was created. But yes, all of our solutions are sold based on a subscription basis and delivered through the cloud. Okay. And how do you go to market through a direct sales force or through partner channels or a little of both? We've been predominantly a direct sales model. So we have, in building a new category, accounts receivable outsourcing really wasn't a category. What I'll give you an example. There was a, a large propane company. They were using a print and mail company to print and mail all of their invoices. They were using SAP's Biller Direct module for e-billing. They were using their bank for ACH processing, and they were using a card company for credit card. They were struggling with that mightily. They couldn't get the kind of adoption or the kind of usage they wanted. So they issued an RFP for a new e-billing solution. And we said, yeah, we could sell you our e-billing solution, but that's really not your problem. Your problem is you've got four vendors, all with different sort of agendas here, and you're spending your own precious IT dollars trying to weave them all together. So that's a complex message, and it's difficult for the channel to explain that message in a relatively new industry. So we've always wanted to control our own destiny. So we have 50-plus salespeople. We have a significant marketing spend that we do, all the typical SaaS type of things with BDRs and campaigns and events. But we've predominantly been a direct model because accounts receivable is going through such rapid change. There are components of our solution that we do sell through the channel. We've partnered with Visa on our business payments network, and they're helping bring the network into the bank channel. We've partnered with many banks and many AP software vendors, which deliver payments into our customers. So it was, I would say, up until about four years ago, almost exclusively direct. But over the last four years, we've really made a significant investment in the channel. Okay. Curious if over the last, say, 18 months with COVID and and the work from home, has that been advantageous to your business? Has that really been sort of a, a tailwind for you guys? Yeah. So I think it's a couple different stories in there. So when COVID hit in March of 20, we were fortunate enough that we had a pandemic plan that a customer asked us for in an RFP 10 years previously. Actually didn't know what a pandemic was at the time, but we quickly put together a pandemic plan 10 years ago and have been testing it every six months ever since. So we relatively seamlessly moved to a work from home environment. Uh, Many of our customers did not have those things in place and they struggled for those 
probably first two or three months of the pandemic. And because of those struggles, their volumes went down, their volumes of invoices that they were sending, their volumes of payments, because they were selling to other people who were also struggling. So there was a classic V-shaped recovery where volumes went down and then they came back over three months. But I think what it sort of made CFOs realize was how digital their financial supply chain really was. A lot of the things that happen in accounts receivable are the CFO is unaware of. Um, they don't know that they're sending out tons of invoices via mail or getting lots of paper checks into their bank lockbox because they're busy doing CFO type things. But one of the hidden things that happened during COVID was there was a massive breakdown in the U.S. postal system in terms of delivery times. And that still happens today. The postal system is under enormous pressure. So when your invoices take longer to get there and your checks take longer to get back, that starts having an impact on your financial performance. Your day sales outstanding, you know, the, literally the time it takes you to get paid gets slowed down dramatically. So the postal system was sort of a byproduct of COVID, but that was a big impact. Another big impact was the work from home environment. So a lot of small businesses, let's say they have 10 to 20 employees, they're still writing checks. They've got a checkbook in the office that they use, but those checkbooks weren't going home, right? Organizations didn't say, okay, bring the checkbook home and do all your payments that way. So it's a bit of a wake-up call for our customers' customers to start doing things digitally. That work-from-home thing is not changing. Even if the pandemic ultimately goes away, which we all hope it will, this work-from-home change is not going to be going back to what we did in 2019. So I think more and more organizations are moving towards full digital, and it was triggered by COVID, but really the work-from-home environment is going to be the catalyst that we think will be a big tailwind for us in the future. So it was really happening anyway. It just really accelerated, I think, is what I hear a lot said. Yeah. So we spent the last 20 years educating suppliers about what are the benefits of digital payments, right? Oh, we can get you paid faster. We can save you money on postage. It'll be a better customer experience. It is better from a compliance perspective. And that's all well and good, but nothing like a good wrap across the head that says, hey, you know what? You can't get paid unless you do things digitally. That really wakes people up and, and causes them to take attention a whole lot faster. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say differentiates Bill Trust from your competitors out there? Yeah, so there's a lot of people in the B2B payments category. And you know, I'll give you some examples. On the small and medium-sized businesses, you'll see companies like QuickBooks and Bill.com, and they're focused on people less than $5 million in revenue, and they have significant problems, and there's millions of those businesses. Those are not our end customers. Those people use our solutions through one of our customers, but that's not who we target. We're generally targeting medium and large enterprises, generally 50 million and up, and some of the largest businesses on the planet who have complex accounts receivable problems. So these aren't SMBs. These are big businesses with big problems. Not to say it's better or worse than those other business models. So at the high end of the model, you'll see companies like Coupa on the accounts payable side and we're on the accounts receivable side. So the invoices that we send out will go into companies like Coupa and the payments that Coupa sends out will come into our customers. So they don't compete with us. Because we're offering a broad range of solutions, we see lots of point solutions that we compete with. So there are people who offer collection solutions and people who offer invoicing and payment solutions. And occasionally we'll be drawn into a RFP for one of those. And we explain to the prospect, we can sell you that, but Ultimately, you're going to want a complete solution. Like you wouldn't buy automatic deposit for payroll and employee check printing from some other payroll provider. You would just buy payroll. 
So it really doesn't make a ton of sense to buy accounts receivable from four different vendors. But yet, you know, that has been the buying behavior over the last 20 years. So we have to educate people on sort of the smarter way to buy. But in terms of integrated receivables, there's a handful of people across the globe that do that. But we're the market leader and have been at it longer than anybody with more customers than anybody. Okay. Where do you see this payments business? And if you want to answer it sort of from the B2B payments perspective, that's great. But where do you see it heading in the next, say, two to three years? I think it's going to be the same thing that happened in the business to consumer space. So we as consumers, we used to use checkbooks to pay our bills. Then we started using things like Quicken. Then we started using like bank bill pay and Biller Direct, where you actually go to the biller's websites. And very few consumers now are writing checks to pay their bills. Like that shift changed. And the shift changed because it was just easier for consumers to do it that way. That same shift is happening in B2B payments, and B2B payments tends to lag B2C by a decade or so, where it is now easier for businesses to pay each other electronically than it is via paper check. So we've seen an acceleration in digital payments over the last two years or so, and I would expect that acceleration to continue as word gets out that it is easier, it's cheaper, you can get paid faster. Why are you not doing things this way? Do you see, just curious, do you see verticals digitize things, you know, one vertical faster than another vertical? I think so, but not because of the reasons you might think. It's not something specific about the vertical, but it's more about word gets out in a vertical. I'll give you an example. We have a heavy presence in something called the heavy equipment industry. Think Caterpillar dealers and Komatsu dealers. So I didn't even know this was a category. We did an acquisition about four or five years ago that had about a hundred different Caterpillar dealers as customers. And they're all talking to each other all the time about what they do because they have geographies and they don't really compete with each other, but they definitely share best practices. So there's nothing specific about that industry which would say, oh, they should be moving digital faster than anybody else. Yet the fact that we've had some great success with a handful makes them talk with others and then it's a great success with dozens and then it's great success across all of the vertical. There are some flywheel effects there as well. The people who are buying from those heavy equipment dealers may be buying from others of our customers. So that will sort of generate some momentum. But I wouldn't say that, oh, distribution is going to be faster than apparel, which is different than food service. I think it's a matter of once the word gets out in a category that there's better ways to do business, you see more and more customers flocking to that because they want to remain competitive. Hey everyone, this is your host Greg Myers with some exciting news to share. October is Financial Inclusion Month and we're going to be talking about all of the products, services, and ways that the payments and fintech industry help support the underbanked and unbanked. Be on the lookout for the first episode on October 6th. A special thanks to our title sponsors, The Clearinghouse and PaySafe Cash. Now back to the show. Do you think there are any macro trends or larger trends that are going to affect your business maybe out five or 10 years from now? So there are sort of a couple different theories around how B2B payments ultimately get solved. So there are a lot of different data points about how many B2B payments are still on paper check, but let's say it's roughly 50% here in the US. Other countries have done far better than the US and are near 100%. And the way they've been successful is through government regulation, where the government will mandate, you will pay each other this way and stop doing it with paper check. That seems incredibly unlikely in the US, and I would not bet that 
our government is going to step in and figure out a way to pass a regulation for everybody to pay each other. There's a lot going on, obviously, politically, and this doesn't feel like it's going to be high on the agenda list. So we get asked a lot about regulation. Is that going to be something that drives electronic payment? And I think it's unlikely in the U.S. The second big thing that we get asked a lot about is standards. As more and more standards evolve, will things like blockchain allow us to solve B2B payments a whole lot faster? And there's never been a lack of standards that have been available to us, whether it's EDI from 25 years ago or XML over the last 10, 15 years. The problem is people don't adhere to those standards. And in fact, sometimes they use the standards in different ways. So the big problem we have in the U.S. around B2B payments is interoperability. And I like to use an example of the ATM network. I don't know how old you are, Greg, but I imagine you have an ATM card, right? Yes. Do you know what's on the back of your ATM card? No idea. Most people don't know what's on the back of their ATM card. But if you look, there's actually some logos on the back of your ATM card that describe ATM networks. And in the old days, you could only use your ATM card at your own bank. So if you were a Citibank customer, you can go to a Citibank ATM and get your money. But then some people had some bright ideas of, hey, let's connect some of these banks together and we'll create these ATM networks. And they had names like Nice and Cirrus and things like that. And I, and I bet there's some logos on the back of your ATM card. Well, that was great because now you could go to a few different banks and as long as they were in the network that you were in, you could get money. But then ultimately, people said, ooh, a better idea is why don't we connect all of these networks together in a network of networks, and now we don't even think about what network we're in. We just go to any ATM machine, and as long as we're willing to pay the fee, we can connect. And the way ATM solved that problem was through interoperability. The ATM networks talk to each other. We as consumers have no idea what happens behind the scenes, nor do we care. We just know that we can get our money anywhere we want. So we're trying to do that play in the B2B space with something called the Business Payments Network, where we're connecting the ACH network, the Visa network, the MasterCard network, the Ariba network, the the bank networks, so that B2B payments can flow smoothly without everybody having to worry about all the endpoints. So there have been other networks that have gone through this change, and we think the B2B category is ripe for this same kind of innovation. So I would expect us to continue. We've been putting up big growth here over the last three or four years, and I would expect this is going to have an enormous impact on the industry over the next five years. So long answer to your question. No, that's great. That's great. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. If you don't mind, tell us your journey to your role there as the CEO and founder. Yeah, sure. So I'm sort of an accidental CEO, I would say. So as I mentioned, I was a computer science major, and I thought I was going to be doing software development my entire career. I joined Accenture right out of college at the time. They were still called Arthur Anderson and did consulting for them and loved doing that. Got recruited to join a software company and ultimately could write code and communicate reasonably well. So they promoted me to manage developers and I loved doing that. That company got bought by a company in Chicago called Platinum Technology, very acquisitive software business and didn't love working for a big company. So left and moved to Princeton, New Jersey and joined a software company called LogicWorks, which was building database design software. At the time, relational databases were just coming out. And ultimately, I wound up running the R&D team at LogicWorks. And it was great. It was like 125 people working for me. It was a public company. I was reporting to the CEO. And I'm like, I'm going to do this job forever. And then about a year later, that company got bought by that same company that bought my previous company, Platinum Technology. It's nothing personal. They were just very acquisitive. So I knew I didn't want to work there. So I left with the head of marketing and we co-founded a business called Paytrust, which was a consumer bill pay company. So 
I had always paid all of my bills online, but they all came to my mailbox, like they were delivered that way. And that was really a pain if you were traveling, you would have to come home after a long trip and go to your mailbox, get all of your bills and type them into a computer. So what Paytrust did was allowed consumers to not only pay all of their bills online, but you could receive all of your bills online. And the way we would do that is we would redirect them to a processing center, we would scan them and we'd OCR them and put them on a website and send you an email that says, hey, your cable bill's in, your Amex bill's in, et cetera. So this was 1998, right in the heat of the dot-com era. We raised way too much money, $100 million. We spent way too much money. And by any test, it was not a successful business. It wound up selling to Medavanti and then Intuit, and now it's owned by FIS. So the service still exists, but it wasn't a, a great ending for anybody. So when Paytrust ended for me, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do actually interviewed to be a CTO again because I was damaged goods. You know, we didn't exactly have great success at Paytrust and I was ready to take a job at a software company. They were like, one more final step. We need you to take a personality test. So I went and did that and I never heard from them again. So <laughs> there's something about that, <laughs> something about that personality test that maybe they didn't think I was the right guy. So in September of 2001, literally 20 years ago, I started Build Trust in my basement with the idea that, hey, I'll be on the other side of what Paytrust did. So when Paytrust would get all of these paper bills, we'd go back to big billers and say, hey, Verizon, you're mailing us 50,000 paper bills a month. Why don't you send us these bills electronically and we'll give you all the payments back electronically? And we would have that conversation. We probably had it a couple dozen times with big billers. And they all love that idea, but not a one could actually do it. They could barely get a bill on their website, much less deliver it to a, a third party. So, ooh, light bulb moment. What if we work for these billers and help them navigate this world of electronic billion payments. So that was the nexus for the idea. At no point did I really think this was going to amount to anything 20 years ago. You know, I was basically unemployed looking to do something. So started Bill Trust with that vision and was relatively conservative. If you look at some of the companies today that are raising, you know, $25 million on an idea, we raised $4 million in the first 10 years of our existence and built a solid business. And then we started doing acquisitions and spent the next 10 years, did eight acquisition and raised about $100 million privately. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we went public back in January because we think there's going to be a, an ADP of this category. We think it should be us. So it's been a great journey. I jokingly say that you know I'm a computer science guy who's faking people out by being the CEO of a company, but I've scaled with the journey. I have a great board of directors that coaches me and keeps me, keeps me sane. So it's been a great ride, but we also think the best is yet to come. Well, the big question is, do you write code? So they don't allow me to touch production code anymore. And it's a very sad, sad thing. That said, some of my code is still in production. So I take small pride in that. It is the code that people complain about most. Um, so I literally couldn't get a job as a developer at Build Trust. The way software is developed today, it's very team oriented. And I was a cowboy coder and I could produce lots of code, but it wasn't well documented. It worked pretty well, but it wasn't great for people to maintain. I do write some SQL from time to time to query the database. So that's my barely ability to write code still, but it really doesn't count to true coders. Well, congratulations on making 20 years. That's a, that's a quite a milestone. Quick question. Do you remember who your first employee was? I do. Yep. So it was a gentleman who worked with me at LogicWorks and he was the head of engineering at the time. And when we got acquired, people were looking for their next thing and he came on board and wound up leaving soon thereafter because he had this vision of redoing what he had done at LogicWorks. But we wound up hiring probably 10, 15 people from that organization, several who stayed with us for 15, 17 years. So 
we've had some great people along for the ride and really a great team today. Yeah, well, that's a fascinating story. Well, what are some things that you're passionate about? So maybe one business-oriented thing and one personal thing. What am I passionate about? So from a business perspective, I'm passionate in sort of reinvention. So we've got a great team of executives that are way better than I would ever be at their jobs, whether it's our CFO, uh, Mark Schiffke, or our president, Steve Panato, or our head of talent, Jeannie O'Connor. Like, they're awesome at their jobs, and there's very little I can do other than sort of ask, hopefully, intelligent questions, because they're good at what they do. So my job is to sort of reinvent the future of what we do and think about not what's happening in three months or six months, but what's happening in three to five years. So I'm passionate about thinking up those things. Some of those ideas are terrible, and the team keeps me honest on that, but occasionally we come up with a whopper, and we decide to fund that idea, and that's what is probably the most exciting for me. On a personal front, I'm actually nuts about table tennis or ping pong. So 10 years ago, my wife bought me uh, for my birthday, when I turned 45, a ping pong lesson from a guy in my hometown who went to the Olympics. And I was always really good at ping pong. I played in my college, on my fraternity team. I played at all the software companies I was at. I was good. So I show up at this guy's house to play him and he went to the Olympics. I'm like, all right, well, let's play. Let's see how good I am. And it's like me and you playing LeBron James in basketball. If he doesn't want you to score, you ain't scoring. So that became a passion, perhaps a little too heavy. And now I, uh, I play ping pong competitively. I play two or three days a week. And it's a really fun sport for somebody my age. I can keep getting better even at 55. It's all about spins and trickery and speed. And it's really a fantastic sport. If you've ever seen it played competitively in the Olympics, these guys are, are crazy good. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Well, I will say I'm about 115, 16 episodes into this Leaders and Payments podcast, and you are the very first ping pong player that I have met. Awesome. Well, when you find the next one, let me know. I will look him up on the USATD database to see how he stacks up against me. But I may be one of the top public company CEOs in table tennis. Very small group of people. <laughs> but I've got, at least I've got that claim. That's great. That's great. Well, I've been in this payment space about 16 years. And when I came into it, I sort of fell into the industry with no real desire or passion to have a career in the industry. It was before the word fintech even existed. And today it's a lot different, right? These kids are graduating from college. They could have even taken fintech courses. They see this industry as, you know, a hot, sexy industry with all this money and everything being thrown at this industry. So, my question is, what advice would you give someone coming out of college that wants to get into payments? What would you tell them to do to be successful in their career? Get a job at a startup. So I don't think college prepares you to be a, a founder. I think going to spend some time in a startup prepares you to do that. So if your ambitions are to be a founder type person and you want to build a business, no better place than a startup. If your ambition is to change the world, no better place to be than a startup. But I also recognize that that's not the ambition for everybody, right? So being a developer at Google or Microsoft is fantastic. And if that's what makes you makes you happy, do that as well. So I don't think everybody is the same. I mean, that's an obvious statement, clearly. But knowing who you are, I was pretty self-aware and still am pretty self-aware. I, you know, I've got tons of deficiencies and I'm aware of what they are. And I try to surround myself with great people who are really good at those things or read books so that I can get really good at them. But I think understanding what makes you tick and trying to find something that really tickles that for you is probably the best advice I would, I would give. 
Okay. Well, Flint, we've covered a lot of ground today about you, about the company, about where the industry is heading. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, this has been great. I've had a, a bunch of people who've really helped me along my journey, and the industry is incredible in terms of giving back. And so many people I can talk about who have given me help. And if people need help and need advice around payments or their business models, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. I would encourage your listeners to connect with me. I'm always interested in hearing about people's journeys. Okay. Flint, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know your time is very valuable and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Greg. Appreciate it. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 